Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civilized conversation across the political spectrum from center-left to center-right. I'm Mona Charon of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and I'm joined, as always, by Damon Linker of The Week, William Galston of The Wall Street Journal and Brookings, and Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center. We are delighted to welcome this week Anne Applebaum, noted historian, uh, contributor to The Atlantic, um, and uh, who this week wrote two pieces, but one of which was the most forwarded thing I have ever seen on Twitter. It was unbelievable. Scrolling down in my feed, I saw probably 25 people saying, this is a must read. And and I, of course, joined their ranks. So welcome to you all. And so glad you could be with us. Um, so your, t- your piece was titled, History Will Judge the Complicit. And it is a very uh, deep dive into uh, recent history, the history of the 20th century under both authoritarian left-wing regimes and authoritarian right-wing regimes, and looking at what makes some people collaborators and other people dissidents. And you begin with a comparison of two East Germans. Do you want to just set that up for us real quick? Sure. Um, Somebody actually said to me today, you know, that was the longest introduction to a story that anybody's ever, you know, you don't usually get away with in journalism. You get a thousand words to introduce your subject. And I am afraid I did it with these two East Germans. Um, But uh, one of them is Marcus Wolf, who was famously um, the head of the uh, East German spy agency. And the other is Wolfgang Leonard, who later in his life became a um, he was a he was a famous lecturer and historian and writer about communism, a great actually anti-communist um, who even taught George W. Bush at Yale, um, who, who George W. Bush later remembered him for that. Um, however, both of them had very similar backgrounds. They were both the children of communists, German communists. They both grew up in Moscow in the 1930s when when Germany was Nazi, um, and they were both trained during the war to come back to Germany after the war with the Red Army and to help the Red Army take over Germany, essentially. Um, And they both did that. They they arrived in Germany in May, both of them in May 1945. They were both, they were in their 20s. They were both given fairly prestigious jobs for for young people. Um, And one of them, Wolfgang Leonard, became disillusioned. You know, he came to understand that the East German Communist Party, while promising equality, was creating inequality. While promising justice, was creating injustice, and uh, you know that it you know it was it was under the under the essentially the diktat of the Soviet Communist Party. It wasn't really you know the Germany was really an, East Germany was really an occupied country, and he made the very brave decision in 1949 to leave the country. He left everything behind. He escaped in a very dramatic way. Left the country. Eventually, made it to the United States. Um, And the question is, why? So we have two people with very similar backgrounds and actually an identical set of values. They'd absorbed them all of their life. They both come to, they both had read Marx and Engels and the whole Marxist canon. They were both brought up, they were children in the Soviet Union. And yet one of them, when confronted with the realities, you know, what was Soviet occupation of East Germany actually like? One of them said, I can't take this. You know, I just don't believe it. And the other one, not just conformed, but rose to the absolute top of the system. 
And the question is, why? So why does one person make one decision and why does another one make a different one? And the article then goes on to look at what some of the answers might be. There is not one answer. There are many answers. Why do people conform or why do people decide they can't take it anymore? Now, bookending um, your uh, introduction of those two East Germans is your discussion of two Americans, Lindsey Graham and Mitt Romney. Um, and you you note that when you look at when most people respond to somebody like um, Lindsey Graham, who was a um, uh, who was a JAG officer in the military and who uh, came from a, a difficult childhood, worked his way up, but uh, uh, a wonderful um, older brother to to a uh, sibling when they were both um, when they were orphaned. Uh, and uh, and a and a passionate um, defender of freedom uh, in, as the sidekick to John McCain and so forth, great advocate of American values around the world. Um, you look at him, and you would think now there's someone whose principles are strong. He's not going to be the type to truckle to to Donald Trump. Whereas if you look at someone like Mitt Romney, who you know. I, and I'm I'm taking this entirely from you. I'm not stealing it. But you said you know he 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 dipped in and out of parties. He was he was a Democrat. Then he became a Republican, and uh, and he was kind of maybe not such a sincere Republican. Didn't quite know where he stood. But uh, but you know he is the one. And he of course was a was a uh, venture capitalist and so on. And that's not the kind of personality, or at least not the kind of uh, occupational type that we associate with strong, enduring conscience and principles. You did not, however, mention, or if you did, I might've missed it. Did you mention Romney's religious faith? Um, no, I stayed away from it because of course they're both religious. Um, and I was doing something different by comparing the two of them, which is that unlike the, you know, Wolfgang Landard, Marcus Wolf comparison, these are two people with different backgrounds, but they, but they then, they then, you know, defied expectations to um, to behave differently from what one thought. Um, one of them, um, and, and remember, bo but although both of them up to a certain point, they were both candidates for president in the past. Both of them have visions right. of themselves as national leaders. Um, both of them have, you know, an, uh, you know, an idea of a patriotic idea of America and of America's role in the world. Lindsey Graham in particular um, partly through his friendship with John McCain, but also as a as a as a former military officer, you know he has a very clear idea about what Americans should represent in the world, you know, in democracy. And he had, he's he's somebody who I've actually met in Europe a number of times because he travels quite a lot to European conferences. He he you know as a um, as a as a member of the Senate who cares about foreign policy. Um, and yet when push came to shove, when um, when the two of them were presented with evidence, and this is a, here I'm talking about the impeachment, um, uh, you know, the impeachment, and it wasn't really a trial, but the impeachment investigation. Um, there was Washington, a trial as well. There was a trial sort of, in the Senate, as, yeah, it, as it were. <laughs> as it were, the trial, right, exactly. When he was presented with um, the evidence, when they were, two of them were presented with the evidence of what Trump had done, namely that, I mean, remember, what was that event about? That was about Trump essentially privatizing the U.S. government, saying, I'm going to use U.S. taxpayers' money in order to bribe and browbeat a foreign leader to do something 
illegal and immoral. In other words, to you to 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 launch a fake investigation of my political rival. Um, and one of them found suddenly found this just unacceptable. You know, this was pushing the envelope too far. This was too much. This was violating the spirit of the Constitution. The and also not just the Constitution, but it, but all kinds of unwritten rules about how American presidents behave and what kind of foreign policy do we want. And it was actually Mitt Romney, whose background is, as you say, you know, in finance, which is not a field that we associate with patriotism, to put it mildly. Um, and it was it was Romney rather than rather than Graham, who st- finally said, "I can't take this. I object. I'm voting. I'm voting for impeachment." And he was the only senator the only Republican senator who dared to do that, even though they all knew the evidence, they'd all seen it, they all understood exactly what Trump had done. So this, you know, this is not a, we're not talking about Trump voters or people, you know, out in America who don't pay much attention to politics and, you know, have have very, these are people who understand very well the details, what it was that Trump did, what exactly, why it was a violation of things they claim to believe in. And one of them was able to make himself vote for impeachment and the other one didn't. And that, and, and I, you know, there's no, again, I, I wrote these two comparisons, you know, these kind of two pairs of people. Um, it's not a, you know, there's not an exact parallel. Um, it's just to, I wanted to make people think about what is the nature of conformism, what is the nature of collaboration and what is the nature of dissidence and, you know, why a lot of our assumptions about why people do it are wrong. You have a really um, comprehensive list of possible motives for collaborating. Um, and let us you're very clear in the piece that you're not comparing Donald Trump to the Nazis or the communists, but that the frame of mind of people who accommodate themselves to something outside their, their um, value system is similar. Um, and uh, but but you you talk about the the way you know people get corrupted piece by piece, bit by bit. It starts the the petty lies, and you know those don't seem so important, so you just go along. And then of course the lies get bigger. And uh, you you list a number of things: personal benefit that people want, wanting to be close to power, cynicism, and so forth. Let me ask you though about. Um, those are all the reasons to collaborate. Do you think you can describe the reasons not to, um, other than simply there are some people who have it within them for some reason to buck the crowd? I mean, it's, you know, it's a very individual thing. It's a, you know, I, I, I've, I've talked a lot to dissidents in my life. And actually I talked, there were a lot of people I spoke to for this article who didn't make it in because it was, their stories were complicated and so on. But usually... In fact, it's the it's the true believers, you know, the people who really care about the ideas that are unable to collaborate. I mean, funnily enough, it's the real Marxists, you know, again, and, and Wolfgang Leonard was one of those. And I had a long conversation with another East German who started his life as one of those as well. You know, the people who really read Marx and said, I believe that, you know, people must be equal and there must be prosperity for all and we can create a better world. Those were the people, funnily enough, who couldn't take it when they discovered that the Soviet system was um, not about equality, you know, that it was cruel, that it was undemocratic, that it was, um, you know, that it sent people unfairly to, you know, to concentration camps, you know, that it was profoundly unjust. Sometimes it was idealists, you know, the original 
activists and idealists of the system who become disillusioned and can't take it anymore. Um, and there are a couple of examples of that that we've seen before our eyes, actually, in the last couple of years. And the most interesting one, of course, is Fiona Hill, who was the, if you remember, she was the um, National Security Council official who testified during the impeachment hearings in the House um, and who was crystal clear about what Trump had done and, and was crystal clear also about some of the conspiracy theories that were coming from the Republican Party. You know, she's absolutely shut down. You know, no, it's not true that Ukraine tried to manipulate the U.S. election. That's a false theory. You know, it's coming from Russia. It's being promoted by Russia. Stop saying it. Um, and Fiona Hill is somebody who is a, if you like, a true believer in the United States and in the American system. She's actually not born in the U.S. She's English. Um, but she's somebody who um, has famously has said both on, you know, a couple of times also to me, has said that she is, um, she's somebody who would have had trouble making a career in her own country because she's from an obscure region and she has a very strong regional accent. And But she came to the United States. She was, you know, she was a real believer in the American dream. And she believes in, she's a patriot. She believes in American democracy. She believes in the important role that the U.S. plays in the world. And she's someone who was, therefore, because she had this belief in the U.S., that she was able to testify in front of Trump. Whereas if you compare, take John Bolton, okay, who was, you know, her boss, in fact, um, mm -hmm. he was somebody who would not testify. And, you know, he might have been able to do it at the end. And he made some hint later on in the proceedings that maybe he would, but actually he didn't want to do it. Um, and it was Fiona Hill, his underling, you know, from, uh, who born abroad, um, who, who, who felt compelled to do it. Um, so very often it's people who have, who really believe in the ideas. Um, sometimes it's people who come from families that are, you know, they have a particular, you know, very often in the Soviet Union, for example, people with religious families were able to resist communism or people who had very strong family backgrounds were able to do it. I mean, one doesn't want to, I don't want to generalize too much, you know, they're, their, their individual circumstances each time. And um, one of the people I interviewed when I was thinking about writing the piece was a famous East German dissident called Marion Berthler, who she was an, an important dissident in the 1980s. Later on, she became head of the Stasi archives, so she knows this stuff really well. Um, and she said to me, you know, sometimes you can become a dissident in stages, just like you can collaborate in stages. You know, you make one step in that direction, you know, then another you know, then you get some kind of, you know, she said, look, you get psychological benefits from being a dissident. You know, you feel better about yourself. You know, you're not conceding to something that you don't believe in. So there, there are different paths that people take. And again, the piece tries to explore these various different paths. Yes. Uh, and you also mentioned along the same lines with uh, Fiona Hill, you mentioned uh, Alexander Vindman, very, very similar motivation there where he uh, was an immigrant, came as a child uh, in his case, but uh, strong belief in the ideals of the country. It was a fantastic piece. I highly recommend it to people. Uh, look on the Atlantic. History will judge the complicit. And it, and it, and you brought to it so much uh, learning um, and uh, and and so much penetrating analysis. I I just loved it, and I think it will stand the test of time. Now let us move on. Unless Bill, did you want to say something, Bill, about Boy, I sure do. article? First of all, it may have been the longest introduction in the history of journalism. It was also one of the best. Yo, yo. 
as a John le Carré fanatic, uh, it was, you know, to use the overused term riveting. Uh, a couple of comments and then a question. Comment number one, the very best lengthened out study of the modalities of complicity that I have ever encountered is a seven year long series called A French Village. If you, ha- if you haven't watched it, do. I'm watching it you know, now. It is, fabulous. You know, it, it is an <laughs> unbelievably subtle study of the step-by-step process and also the almost the mystery of the choice between collaboration and resistance. That's comment number one. Comment number two, I don't think Lindsey Graham would have done what he has done if John McCain were still alive. I think the through line here with, with Lindsey Graham is taking his cues from stronger men. I can't prove that, uh, but once McCain disappeared from the scene, Donald Trump was the strongest gravitating force in Lindsey Graham's universe. Uh, here's my now. Here's my question, uh, and I'm going to put a name on the table and three dates. Uh, would you have said that Jim Mattis? was a collaborator in the fall of 2018, if that question had been put to you right before he resigned as defense secretary. Second piece of that question, what would you have said last week? Third, what would you say now? Uh, It's very interesting. Mattis is a very interesting character here. Um, You know, Mattis is somebody who, you know, I've, I've, of course, followed his career from the beginning, who in a way illustrates my point, because... Mattis understood from the beginning that he was, you know, he was his his job was to protect America or or more specifically to protect the army from Trump. In other words, he was a classic character that you find over and over and over again in the history of occupied countries. Um, It doesn't mean that he was evil or bad. I mean, this is what you saw in that. If you saw if you watch the French village, you know that not everybody who collaborates has bad motives. You know, some people, people do it for all kinds of reasons and some of them are admirable, you know. And Mattis's original motive seemed to me admirable, right? I'm going to hold the line. I'm going to take care of the army. I'm going to make sure it's not politicized by this guy. You know, I'm going to try and protect our alliances. You know, I'm going to, you know, that seemed to me to be what he was doing. Um, But that kind of, you know, that kind of attitude has a shelf life. You know, and there's a there's a point at which it ceases. You know, once you have become a kind of tool of the dictator or a tool of the of the occupier, you know, then you know slowly, you know, it loses its you know your your the positive role that you were playing um, turns into a negative one. And so I would say that probably yes, by the end of Mattis's term as defense secretary. Um, his presence was becoming more and more negative and that he knew that things were going on that were unacceptable. He was still there by his very presence. He was, you know, and, and given who he is and his um, and his background and the respect that he enjoys in the military, he was somehow saying Donald Trump is okay just by being there. Um, and so, and, and he clearly felt that himself, which is why he resigned. I mean, he, you know, there was a, there was a, there was just a time limit on what he could do. Um, I was very angry at him after he resigned that he was not more vocal because that was the time when he, you know, particularly at the end of his term in office when he knew he was going to leave and maybe just after he's left, 
Um, that was the moment to speak out. You know, when he, he might have, as defense secretary, imagined the impact he would have had if he'd said some of the things that he's saying today, which, you know, but I'm sure he knew then. You know, he, he knew that, Don, that Trump was behaving in a manner that was unconstitutional. He knew that he was damaging U.S. interests abroad. You know, he knew all these things. And he could have had so much more weight and had so much more influence if he'd spoken up then. I mean, as I understand it, Mattis, um, his hesitance has had something to do with his fear that the, he didn't want the military to become a kind of political football. He didn't like the idea that the military would politicize and he didn't want to somehow be responsible for that. And I suspect his decision to speak out now, which as you say, he has made a sudden decision to do that, is to do with very specific the incident, which I think Moni you want to talk about later, the incident um, in Lafayette Square a couple of days ago when the military was used to, to in a very explicitly partisan way to help Trump. Um, and this is exactly the kind of thing that he objects to. So I would say, you know, that I am pleased that he's spoken out. I think it's maybe too late to make a difference, but um, it does, it, it, it speaks well of him that he um, has managed to be so clear um, at this very key moment right now. And we're going to talk later about whether this is possibly the start of a cascade. Linda, did you have a comment? Well, I was just going to suggest, I, I guess I slightly disagree uh, with Anne's uh, last point. I think it is more powerful that he is speaking out now. And I fear that had he spoken out earlier, that it would have just gone the way of Ben Sass and others, you know, who got up and gave speeches and said, you know, how bad nobody listened. And so, you know, at a certain point, there there is a tipping point. I think we are at that tipping point now. Uh, I think this utter chaos that we are seeing throughout America, you know, it's a this confluence of the pandemic and the uh, drop in, in uh, employment and people being insecure and people being frightened, now coupled with uh, this egregious racism um, that I think Trump has been dog whistling and more than dog whistling about for four years. It started in his campaign and it's continued in, in, into a crescendo. And um, I think that we're at that point now when we could see someone like Mattis beginning uh, to lead a movement. Now, we saw Lisa Murkowski today speak out. I'm still waiting for other Republicans to do it. I can't believe that they think it is even in their self-interest uh, to remain silent in the face of what's going on. And, uh, you know, you sort of just can't imagine what goes through people's minds when they see the president behave as he did in Lafayette Square, which I know is the next subject you want to talk about. Well, since you raised Lisa Murkowski, I'll just provide the quotation. She said that what Jim Mattis said, General Mattis said, was true, honest, necessary, and overdue. And people could say the same for Lisa Murkowski. <laughs> Let us uh, turn then to what has been dubbed the Battle of Lafayette Park. And I, I'd like to introduce it by noting uh, something that Donald Trump said in 1990. I was first alerted to this by my friend and colleague, Jay Nordlinger, who dug this up. Uh, 
during the 2016 campaign. It was a an interview that Trump gave uh, in 1990, as I said, to I think it was Playboy magazine, but it might have been another outlet. But in which he was asked serious questions. He meant he was asked about Gorbachev. He said Gorbachev was too weak, uh, so therefore he was not a fan. And then he said this about what the Chinese government did in Tiananmen Square, quote, when the students poured into Tiananmen Square, the Chinese government almost blew it. Then they were vicious, they were horrible, and they put it down with strength. That shows you the power of strength. Our country is right now perceived as weak, as being spit on by the rest of the world. In the case of Monday night's events, we arguably saw Donald Trump having the exact same mindset that if there are protesters that they, oh, by the way, he also called the peaceful demonstrators in Tiananmen rioters, which they were not. Uh, the protesters in Tiananmen Square, in, uh, in Lafayette Park uh, were peaceful. They were loud. They were boisterous, uh, but they were perfectly peaceful. And then we all know what happened. Or do we? Uh, this is a this is a textbook case of the way the Trump explainers in conservative media, the Trump advocates or the anti anti Trump brigades, interpret absolutely everything, and there is no outrage so grave that they will not find a way to uh, try to nitpick or explain it away. And what they did was they point they said, well, there was no tear gas actually deployed. And so then we got into a semantic argument about whether the pepper spray that was used was technically tear gas or not. Uh, Bill, that's the way they roll. Uh, they find some way to change the subject from what Trump did to there was some fact that was that the press got wrong or the press overreacted or isn't it great that Trump is pushing all their buttons? I don't know what to say. Right? I'm, you know, uh, I'm, I'm out of words to describe, uh, you know, <laughs> if I can steal a phrase from the wrong context and put it in the right context, the banality of evil uh, that has overtaken not only the administration, but those who are defending it. Uh, and, uh, you know, I can, I, I think the moral logic is all, is all too clear. The enemy of my enemy is my friend, whatever the enemy of my enemy does. And it's also clear uh, that the, you know, that the room that houses President Trump's moral sense is very sparsely furnished. Uh, it actually consists of only one dimension, strength and weakness. Uh, and strength equals good, weakness Which equals is not a moral bad. sense at all. <laughs> well, it, you know, it, is a, it, it is a kind of moral vision of the world, which leads to the most appalling consequences that, that we saw throughout the 20th century. Now, here it is. In the White House. Damon, you uh, wrote a piece this week that was actually quite similar to one that Anne wrote also. And it was about the not just the dueling narratives that are out there, but the fact is that what's happening in America right now is complicated. It isn't just a simple black and white Manichaean story of good versus evil. 
there is tremendous disorder. There is blame to go around. The, the rioting and the looting should not be excused. And yet it is being excused by some people on the left. Uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones, uh, famously the uh, impresario uh, of the 1619 Project at the New York Times, posted this. There's a lot of consternation on here about the uprising in Minneapolis and how only the only means protesters can be effective is through nonviolence. I hurt for the destruction like everyone else, but the fact of history is nonviolent protest has not been successful for Black Americans. Michael Moore said, riots, this is a rebellion. And Chris Cuomo of CNN said demonstrations don't have to be peaceful. So that is a piece of what's happening out there as well, as well as the egregious and disgusting conduct of Donald Trump and his enablers. Uh, that's part of this, what we're experiencing as well. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've sort of oscillated over these years of the, of the Trump regime uh, between worrying about uh, burgeoning authoritarianism from the president and then worrying about the much broader uh, kind of countrywide, culture-wide problem of civil war and the fact that I actually, I mean, what Trump did the other night in, uh, in Lafayette Park struck me as sort of worrying me more toward the latter, actually, even though most people's reaction was, oh my goodness, this is sort of like Tiananmen Square. This is, this is finally kind of military, uh, uh, kind of like a military, uh, uh, you know, martial law being in, in, imposed on uh, the country with violence. Uh, and there was definitely that, aspect to it, but it also was very Trumpian in that they, you know, thank goodness, no one was shot. There was no, there were, there were no, not even widespread beatings. There was apparently tear gas or smoke bombs, pepper spray. They corralled the protesters out of the, uh, the square with some violence, but it had the whole air with Trump standing in front of the church with the Bible of a kind of reality show moment. He wanted to look tough but didn't actually do that much beyond giving images that were very upsetting, which paradoxically has the effect of making that latter problem of kind of civil unrest worse, because it then provokes the protesters to, to become more agitated and perhaps slip more into their own violent acts. And that is, that is sort of what I wrote about the other day, that the real fear that I have is of the country coming apart, uh, that you get a series of provocations from the president uh, that just make division worse and worse because he thinks that the more divided the country is, the more he benefits and the more his party benefits. When in effect, there, there might come a point where uh, things go so far in that direction that uh, uh, really nobody ends up winning in the end. So, Linda, I've always been of the view or long been of the view that we pay way too much attention to presidents in our country, that we give them too much power. But at a moment like this, I do think that the traditional role of the president as soother of the nation, voice of the nation, even conscience of the nation at times of national strife, somebody who can play 
that role is critically important. And I think had he, we had someone in office, of course, we wouldn't have been in this situation if Trump were not president, but if he could have handled it at all differently, along the lines of what you spoke about in your piece, where you said if he had just opened the Bible rather than waving it around, it might have done something to at least give the protesters who, by the way, I mean, I would have been, if I were not afraid of COVID and, uh, and of violence, I would be out there with the protesters myself. I'm really um, so outraged about what happened. And I think it is a moment, it could be a moment actually of national unity on the topic of curbing police, uh, excess uh, police brutality. But imagine if the president had simply said something conciliatory, something about the, uh, something sincere rather than just pro forma. Oh yeah, it was bad what happened to Floyd, but had prayed or had actually gotten down on his knees to pray about George, for George Floyd in a church. I mean, don't you think that would have had some, you know, effect of soothing the terrible passions that are out there? Well, of course, he, Mona, is totally incapable of empathy or the ability. I mean, I I wasn't just joking about opening the Bible and read it. My my guess is he has never read the Bible whenever he's asked for his favorite uh, scripture. I mean, I I didn't grow up in an evangelical, you know, Protestant household where you learn scripture by chapter and verse. Uh, But as I, you know, I think wrote about in my piece. I I know the Bible well. I know the Gospels well. Um, I know what the message of Christ was. And uh, it is certainly not Donald Trump's message. What is astonishing to me, though, Mona, is no longer Trump. I mean, Trump is, in my view, irredeemable. There is nothing that he is capable of doing to unite this country. What is amazing to me is that the people around him seem so bullied by him, seem so frightened by him, or else, you know, just like their jobs very much. I mean, you had Ivanka and her husband, you know, Ivanka who sends out these sappy Instagram pictures of her and masks and, you know, having sentiments about uh, the protesters, etc. And then she walks over in her stiletto heels with him with Jared um, alongside. But worse, you have the Attorney General of the United States taking part in a blatantly political act, and moreover, doing it apparently when he's not busy ordering uh, Bureau of Prisons and ATF and all of the uh, armed uh, law enforcement officers uh, that are housed in the Department of Justice to descend on Washington just to supposedly quell uh what they like to describe as an insurrection. And you have a General Milley uh, alongside him. And again, they're not just, you know, traipsing along beside him, but they stand there uh, like mannequins in front of that church with Trump hoisting that Bible. It was the most sickening thing that I have seen. And I, you know, I, I, I've said on the show that I never tweet. Well, I tweeted this week on that one, and it was the single biggest Twitter response I've ever gotten. That it was the most disgusting thing I have seen in 40 years. You know, that whole, that park, which is now, by the way, closed off and, in, and ensconced in a uh, eight or 10 foot tall fence, Lafayette Park, in the middle of it is, uh, you know, 
uh, Jackson. Um, but around the four edges, there are uh, monuments to American revolutionary heroes. It's called Lafayette Park because there's one of Lafayette, there's one of Rochambeau, um, and most importantly, one that is my favorite is one uh, commemorating General Tadeusz Kosciuszko, um, who was a, a Revolutionary War hero from Poland. And and from you know, speaking uh, of what he did in Lafayette Park, the next day he goes and stands in front of a statue of Pope Paul, uh, John Paul II, who is now a saint, uh, John Paul II. And, and again, this, uh, this photo op, uh, exploitation of religious symbols. I mean, I think uh, St. John Paul II, um, who fought uh, communist repression in uh, Poland, uh, who helped, I think, uh, lead a movement that ultimately uh, saw the downfall of the Soviet Union. Um, I, I, I think he would be horrified at the use of his him, image in that way. I, I mean, I'm just without words. It, it, this is leaving me almost speechless, and I don't know what, how we're going to get out of this as a country. It is pretty grim out there, but Anne, there have been moments of grace. There have been uh, police officers who have knelt with protesters. There have been others who have joined and linked arms with uh, with protesters. Uh, we have had unifying messages from form all of the former living former uh, presidents. And this is not this is not a grace note perhaps, but it is an interesting sort of straw in the wind. If you look at the Drudge Report, which for the very long time has been bulletin board for the right wing online, uh, they are selling T-shirts in solidarity with George Floyd. As you look at this uh, from your vantage point, is there you you wrote about the difficulty of of trying to piece together a coherent picture of what's happening? Give us your thoughts on that. Yes. So thanks. That was another piece that I wrote this week. Um, you know, look, I mean, funnily enough, Linda, you know, I am in Poland right now. Um, and so believe me, this, the, the story of the desecration of the Kosciuszko statue was the main story here. That was, you know, led the evening news and so on. That was the that was what polls took away from from this from this American incident. Um, but look, I am, you know, one of the oddities is that so I'm not in the United States right now, but I'm seeing it on multiple screens, you know, on TV and from, you know, different, you know, foreign and, and, and you know, CNN and the BBC and Polish news. And I see it on my telephone and I see it on my laptop and I see all these different stories. And, and it's clear to me from here, there are a lot of things going on. You know, there is a legitimate, you know, mostly black protest about inequality and, and injustice which seems to me completely understandable and inside American traditions and probably has also been provoked by the fact that African-Americans are, have been more likely to die from this virus than anybody else. That's a, you know, that's a, that's clearly a motivation on top of everything else, you know, at the same time, you can see that, uh, oh, and, and I should say, you, you know, there are stories of police brutality that are real. I mean, I've seen, you know, you can see that police overreaction, um, police anger, you know, misbehavior. 
There are also, as you say, Mona, there are some amazing heartwarming stories about how police have come together with local communities. And there, you know, example after example, Camden, New Jersey, Houston, Texas, of great moments when, um, you know, of unity and solidarity. At the same time, it's also pretty clear that this is a story about infiltration. Both the far left and the far right see this moment as a time to you know, to, 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 to do violent things, smash up shops, you know, put graffiti on walls, um, you know, and make use of this crisis for their own, you know, their own very different purposes. Um, and, you know, trying to fit all of that into a single story is a great mistake. You know, trying to say this is what's happening in America is wrong. And this, of course, is exactly what Trump is trying to do. He wants to make this into a story of Antifa, which, by the way, is not a mass national organization and it's not one that's ever featured in you know most people's you know radar you know political radar before you know this is a far left you know fringe group he's trying to make this into some far left attack on america and therefore we need the army which is a which is a bipartisan instrument of american power you know we need them to fight back against this left wing terrorism i mean this is a grotesque distortion of what's going on you know, just grotesque, um, and people have to resist it. I mean, I think it's I think it's intellectual possible possible to say there is a legitimate grounds for grievance. At the same time, the rioting is terrible. And by the way, some of the rioters I should add are common criminals. You know, they're they're just people stealing stuff from shops. You know, so so you know the rioting is bad and needs to be stopped. You know, what we need is sensible policing to stop the rioting and allow the protesting. That's very difficult, but you know police forces have managed it in the past. And what we don't need is for the president to pretend that America is under attack from some kind of fake power. You know, that's not what's going on. Um, and the and let me just let one. My final thought would be the thing that worries me about this is that historically presidents and political leaders have ended events like this or or calmed them by 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 using this sort of meta narrative about america you know we are a multi ethnic multiracial you know nation with many views but we have this tradition of consensus and discussion let's return to that you know there would be some you know if anybody else were president from the last 100 years you know republican democrat whatever that's what they would have done um, you know, they would have sought for some kind of unifying messages. Trump has not done this, exactly the opposite. He's sent messages to his supporters that he's on their side. And what worries me is that the actually the message of unification, which, by the way, we've heard from George W. Bush, you know, we've heard from, you know, one or two, several other, Repub you know, mostly ex-Republicans out of office, but still, you know, I'm worried that that message becomes another narrative that Trump has to dismiss. In other words, the thing that once unified us becomes, you know, the language that once unified us becomes yet another thing that Trump feels he has to oppose. And th this is what worries me about the current moment. Yes. Now, speaking of the military, this was a week uh, when a number of leading military figures did speak up. We've already spoken of General James Mattis, who said, we are witnessing the consequences of three years of this deliberate effort. We are witnessing the consequences of three years without mature leadership. He noted in particular, as Anne just said, that the president does nothing to unite us, but seeks to divide us as a people. 
General Mike Milley, who got criticism for appearing in camouflage in Lafayette Park beside the president, uh, has apparently repented of that and issued a letter to the service chiefs, which stresses their uh, obligations under the Constitution. This document, he wrote, is founded on the essential principle that all men and women are born free and equal and should be treated with respect and dignity. And he goes on in that light. We, are, we, we swear an oath to the Constitution. Sort of implicit in that was we don't swear an oath to a person. Um, the Secretary of Defense, Mark Esper, also was highly criticized for uh, his conduct, both in the Lafayette Park episode and also in the uh, comment that he made earlier that day uh, about tr- treating American streets as a battle space. Uh, he's contradicted himself a few times and, and said various things, but he now says that he opposes the use of the insurrection Insurrection Act in this circumstance. He said it should only be used in case of extreme emergency, and this is not it. Um, Possibly he is on the outs now with Trump. And finally, Admiral Mike Mullen, former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, wrote in The Atlantic, our fellow citizens are not the enemy and must never become so. Uh, Damon, is this possibly a turning point? Because this president, if you know, would if you ask him, he would say that one of his prized constituencies is not just members of the military, but people who out there in the country who revere the military. If he is getting pushback from the military, does that possibly damage him with his own base? It's possible, and I'm always pleased when uh, I hear anyone come out uh, and speak out against Trump and the things he says and does, and especially after the mayhem of this week, it was very welcome, although uh, I wouldn't be fulfilling my special role on the podcast if I didn't give listeners a further reason to worry even about this good news, which is that um, we should be always on guard about military leaders intervening in politics. Um, Now, of course, we had General Eisenhower, who became a president and a very admirable one, who I I, uh, look up to quite a lot. I wish we had another Eisenhower around who could run and uh, win an election, a retired general, that is. Um, But the idea of, of kind of military people directly, not just running for office, but directly seeming to contradict the president uh, and speak out against him. Again, I cheered it this week, but but we should be uh, wary of a, a kind of politics where we begin to look for what might be called a kind of coup of the center. Uh, you know, what if Trump does order troops to do something horrible and then the troops refuse to follow it and take over instead? Well, now those of us who hate Trump might for about five seconds say, yay, finally, he was stopped before he did something terrible. But before you know it, we've lived through, again, a kind of coup in the name of decency that we might on substance cheer but, uh, you know, countries that undergo that kind of uh, an alternation of power don't easily come back from it. 
Uh, and so that's something to, to keep in mind um, as we live through these uh, very distressing moments uh, in the country. I really don't want to, to get to the point uh, where, where that starts to become normal. The last point I'd, I'd say on that is also that I think uh, Trump also does, and this speaks to specifically what you asked me about, Mona, about uh, whether this would lead Trump to lose some support from military people. He has been quoted in stories uh, attacking his generals pretty viciously. Um, usually in private and then it's leaked, but still that it eventually gets out and it doesn't seem to have hurt him among kind of rank and file soldiers. So, you know, could I imagine a week from now? I mean, he's already attacking Mattis in tweets. Uh, you know, could I imagine him, you know, firing SB, coming out and actually uh, denouncing uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, asking for his resignation, starting to call him names in the name of uh, you know, the military in the abstract, meaning the rank and file soldiers, I sure, I'm, nothing would surprise me at this point. So I would watch for that perhaps in the near future. Bill, throughout history, the dictators and, and strongmen and kings have relied upon the military to keep their power. That's obvious. Uh, and we the, the the wall of separation between civilian and military is very high in the U.S. and there are reasons for those norms and traditions. But let me present you with this: We were told when Trump was successful in gaining the presidency that American institutions would be very strong and would push back. But one by one, they did not. The Republican Party folded, uh, elected officials, business leaders fell into line, intellectuals at opinion magazines and think tanks uh, held their tongues, lawyers, um, the courts, sort of a mixed bag, but um, there definitely remain questions as to whether the Supreme Court will endorse Trump's sweeping assertion of executive immunity from investigation. We'll see. And of course, the press is so divided between red team and blue team that it lacks the broad uh, opinion shaping authority that it used to enjoy. And so is it the case that we are sort of left with the military as the one institution that is still widely respected in the country and that has a tradition of uh, adhering to certain principles uh, without um, partisan tilt? Uh, the short answer, Mona, is yes. From my perch at Brookings, I've had the opportunity to spend a lot of time with military folks, in you know, including very high-ranking ones. And I am unbelievably impressed, not only with their competence, but also with their moral, moral compass. Uh, they have been taught very well uh, they have been highly educated, uh, and the ethos of respect for civilian authority, but also constitutional government, uh, is powerful and it's palpable. Uh, and I am more convinced than ever that if the president gives an order that's unlawful or unconstitutional, uh, there is a military tradition and ethos that will lead even the most senior people reporting directly to the president to resist it. 
And I think that is that is very good news. And it is tribute to the importance of strong institutions with institutional memories and institutional codes of conduct. Uh, there has been a massive deinstitutionalization of American society during the past two generations. But one of the few exceptions to that is the U.S. military. Uh, I don't like the fact that we're going to have to rely on them more than anyone else to preserve the Constitution. But at this point, we have no choice, and I'm grateful that they're there to play the role. We've now come to that section where we each talk about something that we want to highlight. Damon, why don't we begin with you? Uh, sure. Um, mine is uh, actually pointing to uh, two related things. This has to do with uh, something going on in journalism right now. Um, uh, Senator Tom Cotton uh, of Arkansas published an op-ed in The Times uh, on Tuesday of this week and uh, arguing that basically uh, the president should invoke the Insurrection Act in order to put down uh, rioting. Uh, this is Happened at times in the nation's past, but it's obviously very controversial. And usually it's done, if it's done over uh, the request of governors, I think the only time it's been done in over, well over a uh, hundred years in that case has been to desegregate uh, public schools in the South. So obviously that's, that. yeah, I'm, I'm not going to try to defend Cotton's argument. I think it's a terrible idea. Uh, but we'll talk about him some other day. Uh, but this has led to a, uh, a true kind of explosion of rage at the New York Times that uh, the op-ed published this op-ed at all. Uh, and uh, so I'm going to, this I think is going to actually have a lot of reverberations uh, around the journalistic world where there are kind of woke convulsions going on at the moment. I can't uh, explain or give details yet, but maybe by next week there'll be some examples to talk about in concrete. But I recommend to readers, if you want to catch up on what's happening at the Times, there is a very good summary article today, Thursday, in the Miami Herald titled New York Times Journalists Express Betrayal Over Paper's Decision to Run Send-In Troops Column. And then uh, the uh, op-ed editor of the Times, James Bennett, uh, who's at the center of this storm, uh, has, uh, as of this afternoon, published a statement why we published the Tom Cotton op-ed. And, um, uh, you know, I, I would say from what I'm seeing, I would say uh, James Bennett has maybe like a 50-50 chance of getting through this mess. Uh, I mean, the I, mean, I don't know for sure, but uh, major people at the Times are absolutely livid about this. And they're saying so publicly, which technically they're not supposed to do. They're supposed to get in trouble if they do it, but they're doing it anyway. It's a kind of uh, a sort of palace revolution going on over there right now. So uh, it's worth worth taking a look if you're interested in these kinds of Thank you. Anne, do you have something for us? Um, my amusing story of the week is Boris Johnson in Britain saying that he really hopes European workers come back to Britain after the coronavirus. And you know, the whole Brexit thing was about getting rid of European workers. And suddenly they've discovered that there's this big problem. You know, the country depends, I mean, not only in the in obvious things like apple picking, you know, but the whole NHS, their National Health Service, 
depends on European doctors and nurses and, and all kinds of other people. And so he said he wants them back. And how that's going to happen, I have no idea. Oh, and he also invited three million Hong Kongers. And he invited three million. That's actually, that's a more interest. That's a, that's a more upbeat story. Yes, he's invited yeah, three million yeah. Hong Kongers. How that will work in practice, I have no idea. Right, right. Okay, Bill, what's well, yours? Uh, I opened up the Financial Times this morning. And there was a survey uh, that the Financial Times had conducted in conjunction with the Peterson Institute. And I thought a few statistics would cast light on some of our current ills. Uh, you know, to a question, have you suffered significant financial loss because of the coronavirus? 74% of African-Americans of working age said yes, uh, substantially higher than any other group. Uh, when they were asked, had you lost a job or been furloughed? 25% of them said yes. Uh, so I got curious, and I wondered about the longer-term narrative. So here are three facts that I would like to share with our listeners. Uh, during the past 20 years, median household income for African Americans has declined, not just relatively, but absolutely. Uh, African-American household wealth has declined over the past 20 years. Uh, and home ownership rates for African-Americans have declined sharply in the past 20 years. So the narrative of 50 years of progress ought to be broken down into two distinct eras, 30 years of progress and 20 years of stagnation. Part of what's going on now is a reflection of 20 years of stagnation and frustrated hopes. And a terrible virus that has hit the African-American community harder than others. That too. Linda, did we hear from you yet? No, no haven't heard from me, but you and Anne ruined my day. You both, oh, you, both refer, you both referred to Boris Johnson's uh, wanting to give three million uh overseas, uh, British overseas passport holders, uh, the ability to come to Britain uh, from Hong Kong and to gain the right to work and to be on the path to citizenship. That was going to be my good news uh, of the week. So now instead, I'm going to have to point to something else. And it's, you know, following in the path of all of these pessimistic things. There was a uh, front page article today about uh, total membership in the largest Protestant denominations fall at an historic rate. It was in the Washington Post. Southern Baptists see historic drop in membership. Uh, and the uh, article refers to a, um, a new Pew Research Center uh, study that talks about declining uh, Christian affiliation. Uh, and by the way, this isn't because we're seeing more Muslims or Buddhists or others. It's because Americans are becoming uh, less religious. Uh, they're also attending church uh, less uh, often and less regularly than they were. And this is a huge change in America. I mean, one of the things that, you know, America has always differed from much of the rest of the industrialized world, certainly differed from Europe in is that most Americans uh, did define themselves as members of churches or synagogues or uh, mosques. Uh, they did attend services regularly, and we're seeing that decline. 
And it's a long and steady decline that's uh, happened over the last decade. And I think it's not a good thing. Um, I think it does say that we're having a change in American character, and it's not necessarily for the best. One of the things that churches do is they provide services and communities. They're, they're one of the mediating institutions between individuals and the state. They provide job training and, and help in hard times and, and community feeling and all kinds of benefits that are very, very hard to find substitutes for when they disappear. Um, I would like to mention, since it came up that we, uh, during the course of our discussion, that uh, what is happening in America right now is complex and multifaceted. There are lots of stories of police brutality and also police uh, generosity and, and big heartedness. There are stories of rioting and simple looting and destruction on, in a wanton fashion. There are also hundreds of thousands, perhaps more Americans just sincerely marching for justice. But I have decided that we have it wrong on our podcast. I don't think that, that Donald Trump is the most dangerous man in America. I think it's Tucker Carlson based on, based on watching his rant this week about the riots, which apparently got one of the largest audiences on television that night, bigger, not just the biggest audience on cable, but the biggest audience on TV while he was speaking. And it was a, it was about 15 minutes of first images of riot porn you know, uh, with denunciations of rioting, okay, but nothing about peaceful protests, no distinction made between people who are peacefully protesting and those who are rioting. All were labeled protesters. And um, then there came the denunciations of everybody in power. So he went after Mike Pence, Carly Fiorina, Kay Cole James, President of the Heritage Foundation, Nikki Haley, accusing them of various sins, including um, making excuses for rioters or even expressing any kind of sympathy for the idea that we have a racism problem in this country. Uh, he was he was particularly sharp about Nikki Haley, and I don't think our listeners need to use too much imagination to figure out why that might be true, thinking ahead, um, that she said that we all have to take this personally, that is the killing of George Floyd. And he said, I have to take it personally? I've never even been to Minneapolis. And why is some politician telling me I'm required to be upset about it? So Tucker Carlson is very smart. He's skilled. Unlike Donald Trump, he's not incompetent and he's frightening. So keep an eye on him. All right. And we hope you will keep it here. We were thrilled to have Anne this week. Thank you so much. And uh, thank you one and all. Great. Wonderful. And thank you one and all for participating and for um, giving us your feedback. We do read them. I am uh, uh, aware of the folks who wrote in and said that they do think that uh, uh, that Jamel Bowie got the better of the argument on uh, the topic of the Coopers in Central Park. So that was interesting. And I will rethink that. And um, anyway, we welcome all of your emails and your ratings and your participation. Thank you so much. And uh, we'll be back next week. Mm -hmm.